Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the 1950s, a fairly new technology was sweeping the country, and you could argue it was getting out of control. The first category, the Civil War. How much do you know about it? You tell us from 1 to 11. That's an awful big subject. Uh, I'll try for eight points. For eight points. The technology was television, and by the mid-1950s, about half of American homes had a TV set. And people were glued to programs like the game show 21. What motion picture won the Academy Award for 1955? On the waterfront? No, I'm sorry, the answer is Marty. Marty. The pressure, though, to make money in TV was tremendous. And what you thought you were seeing wasn't always quite as straightforward as it seemed. If either of you want to stop the game, you must tell me so right now. I'll stop. Then you'll win $20,000. Congratulations, Mr. Van Dorn. 21, as it turned out, was rigged. The answers were fed to contestants to heighten the suspense. And Congress would hold hearings in 1959 questioning why entertainment value had eclipsed honesty. But NBC, which had aired the rigged show, had what they thought was a secret weapon in their back pocket. Broadcasters um, like NBC, actually, um, to try to win back the trust of the public, would put on these shows, uh, put on educational shows. Ingrid Okert is a Haas fellow at the Science History Institute and has spent years looking at how science has changed TV and how TV has changed science. She says that some of the shows that the networks were most proud of were about science, like one called Continental Classroom. And Continental Classroom is a show that, again, is a sort of uh, literal blackboard science approach where you have a scientist who's going to teach the audience about, you know, chemistry every morning at 7 a.m. nationally. And this was a pretty cool show because the idea was that you could watch the show follow along with a little special work booklet, and then at the end of the term, quote-unquote term, you could send in your answers um, and have that course be accredited by a local college. NBC knew this might not have been a get-out-of-jail-free card, but they kind of hoped it was. What they say is, oh, look, we messed up, but look, we've been doing this great stuff already. So you guys should continue to trust us because we are trying to build a better America. We're trying to build more teachers and create more scientists. And the most important thing is that we're, you can trust us with your children. In the 1950s, as television was trying to figure out what it was and what it stood for, programs about science started to shape how the American public understood the world around them. Accuracy and entertainment value sometimes kind of ended up on a collision course. Makeup and sets and advertisers, they were a lot more important on TV than they obviously were in real labs. But the impact of television on how Americans understood the essence of science, even if scientists disputed that essence, was enormous. We will show you how water is purified so that it's safe to drink when you draw it from the faucet in your home. The uh, turbid... The river water is flowing from this jar. That was sanitary engineer John Geyer, a professor at Johns Hopkins, trying, though maybe not in a super thrilling way, to explain water cleanliness to the American public. He was on the Johns Hopkins Science Review, a show that got its start in the late 1940s, long before Continental Classroom. It was run by a guy named Lynn Poole, who was not a scientist, but he didn't exactly feel like trusting real scientists to run the show was a smart idea. 
But that was because he had come out of um, a tradition of um, ballet and vaudeville theater. And so he really was an expert in performance. And so what he did before every show was to bring those performance skills to the scientists. He would literally break down the moves on set um, and coach them as they walked uh, because he said, to quote, he said that if scientists were left to their own action, they would start swaying like cobras on set. Ingrid Okert, who's also a NASA history fellow, says there was one particular episode when Poole brought on Alexander Fleming, who had won the Nobel Prize for his work on creating penicillin. And so Lynn Poole has Sir Alexander Fleming on set. And as he's talking to him, says, oh, can you can you show us this? You know, can you bring out the um, the original sample of penicillin for us? And Fleming looks at him and kind of grins and says, oh, I just happen to have it here. Isn't that funny? Or did you tell me four or five times not to forget it? And so, I mean, I guess that's what you do see a little bit, um, certainly in instances where the scientists are feeling like they're maybe not as appreciated on set. Which, in some ways, brings us back to the scandal of the quiz shows. They were rigged so executives could rake in cash. Science, though, has always been more than just a game. For many, it represented a higher calling. But that didn't stop folks on TV from massaging it a bit. As one producer told NBC, We don't want to alienate lower education levels. We want to keep them, but we want to attract higher type dames in addition. And what he talks about when he says that is to talk about the true audience of a lot of these shows in the 1950s, which... And might be odd to think about, but we're usually upper income housewives. Why were upper income housewives the target? One word, advertising. Shows could and did talk about the science of laundry and detergent and diamonds for women watching at home. And their sponsors could easily be built in. One show for kids was underwritten by Quaker Oats, and it wasn't averse to discussing the science of cereal. particular show, though, for lots of American kids, was a total game changer when it came to science. The show went all the way from the early 1950s to the late 1960s. Here's Mr. Wizard explaining how heat works to a girl by trying to burn some fake cash. The reason it won't burn a hole in your pocket is because it won't burn at all. True, it won't burn. Yeah, but you know why? Because it has this in it. Well, what's that? Metal object. What is that metal object? Well, that's a good conductor, and it'll take the heat from the flame before the, the phony money has a chance to burn. Yeah, well, it, it's be, and what kind of uh, heat uh, conduction, convection, or radiation is this? Well, this be conduction. Watch Mr. Wizard would change the lives of famous people. It would inspire real scientists. But it came, not surprisingly, from the mind of a radio guy named Don Herbert, who was looking for a better gig, and he got inspired one day sitting in a public library. And he's leafing through magazines in this library, and he's like, wait, I like, I like science. I love these science magazines. I like doing experiments on my own. I wonder if kids would be interested in doing this. And he had a background, not as a scientist per se, but as a science educator. He was educated in a teacher's college. And so he initially brought the show um, to different producers in the Chicago area and suggested that it would be just him doing experiments. And got really a tepid response. 
And then he said, well, but what if I have a child on the program with me? And the producer said, ah, well, that's interesting. Huh. Um, and so he had children of his own. And so he knew how to work with children. Mm-hmm. And he basically decided to have on a, a little boy and a little girl every week on his program an alternation, right? Mm-hmm. So one week would be a girl, one week would be a boy okay. because he wanted to be fair. And the idea was that they would do an experiment with him. They would be equal partners in observation and, you know, just as much of a scientist as he was on screen. Hmm. Um, And I think that's really the theory of Mr. Wizard, which is that kids can really do science by themselves and have fun with it. One of the big impacts of Mr. Wizard was on this kid uh, who would grow up to become Bill Nye the Science Guy. And he said, this is a quote, uh, he he wrote this when uh, Don Herbert uh, died. And he said, when you watched Mr. Wizard, it was as if you were visiting him at home. At the start of each show, a kid just like you would stop by his house and together, the three of you, it felt as if you were right there with him, would go through a series of household science demonstrations. There, in like seeing that next generation of TV personalities, because of course, what would Bill Nye grow up to become but a science television personality, the impact of like Mr. Wizard on him as a little kid. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, the when um, when Bill Nye writes um, so evocatively about sitting and watching these programs, he really keys in on what I've read and what so many people have told me about watching Mr. Wizard, which was that they were there with the kids. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting parts of the project was reading through all the fan mail from um, the Mr. Wizard collection and to read about the children who write it and say, hey, could I come to the show? Could I do mm. experiments with Susie? He actually has a very large large fan base who are girls. And one of them writes and saying, you know, a group of five of us meet every Saturday morning and we watch Susan on screen and we like to watch her because she looks like us. And, Mm. you know, she's about our age and we'd love to invite her to come and play with us sometime. (laughs) You know, I think actually one of the ways Mr. Wizard, Don Herbert, knew he was getting big was when he was living in Chicago and a three-year-old managed to call him one night at home. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my gosh. The little uh, boy's mother writes in like the next week's being totally embarrassed saying, I'm so sorry. I don't know how he managed to talk to the operator. You know, I hope you forgive us. But again, it's about the power of someone like Mr. Wizard, who really is one of the very first science creators to do what Bill Nye also does very well, which is to create this sense of confidence in the audience at home and trust. Right. So let's talk about one of the scientists who really sort of took back in some ways from the producers and the directors and all these sort of non-science folks who had been directing shows, took back the reins. um, And that's Carl Sagan. Um, I'm going to play a little bit of Carl Sagan um, in this kind of groundbreaking series that aired in 1980 uh, called Cosmos. Here he is. The cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. Our contemplations of the cosmos stir us. There's a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation as if a distant memory of falling from a great height. How was Carl Sagan, um, who was an astronomer, a real astronomer at Cornell University, how was he transformational 
on TV. And like just to hear him there, yeah. I feel like he's so good at doing voiceover work. It's amazing that he's, he's an astronomer at Cornell. Yeah. Um, Carl Sagan, I think, is one of the best science communicators of the 20th century. And again, in that introduction, you just hear him. You're sort of like what Bill Nye was saying about Don Herbert earlier. Mm -hmm. Really good, talented science communicators have this ability to bring you into the moment with them. He captured captured your attention and filled you with wonderment and amazement. If you think about it, by the time that uh, he was doing Cosmos, um, 1980, he'd actually been on television years before and radio even earlier. His very first national radio broadcast is in 1962. And so he spent decades preparing for that wonderful moment in Cosmos. So do you think that Sagan was like the first person to kind of unite this idea of being a scientist and being a celebrity? I mean, you know, he was somebody who went on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, which is what a Hollywood star would do. Yeah, actually. So there's a a group of um, science people who go on TV in the 1970s um, because Johnny Carson is really interested in science. And so one of the very first people to do this before Carl Sagan even was a guy named Paul Ehrlich. Hmm. And what Paul Ehrlich remembers is once he appeared on Carson, he he couldn't go on airplanes anymore without people saying, hey, you were on Carson. And Margaret Mead, who your listeners might know as this leading figure of science and certainly science communication. And anthropology. She was like a great anthropologist. Yeah, that's right. Um, So she was even on Carson and Mm. she was floored by suddenly how people remembered her, hmm. um, how people in New York City, even her do- doorman would come up to her and say, <laughs> I saw you on Carson last yeah, night. And she right. said that television had this transformational power that hmm. she'd never seen before. She hmm. said it was amazing that someone would watch you on Carson and then they were willing to drive maybe an hour and a half to go and see you in an auditorium in person. Hmm. And so Carl Sagan was uh, one of several of these people to really, again, find um, a a large audience on a program like Cosmos. And I think he was one of the best. And I think one of the things that, again, we we might uh, miss if we watch just an episode of Cosmos where we see Carl Sagan being this wonderful sage of science, and he is, is that he's got a really good sense of humor. Hmm. And part of the reason that he's on Carson is that Johnny thinks he's funny. And he gets the audience to laugh. There was uh, one sort of ceremonial demonstration at the resurfacing of the Arecibo Observatory in 1974. A signal was sent by uh, Frank Drake, who's getting married in two days. I thought I might sure know. But to a place that's 24,000 light years away, it's not a, you know, so if there's an answer, it'll be in 48,000 years. Don't don't hold your breath. uh, That was merely... really being on hold, isn't it? (laughs) Wow. But I think Carl Sagan's very brave to be doing what he's doing because, again, he's part of this generation of scientists. He's one of the very first in his generation who goes on TV. Um, And certainly you were talking earlier about this question of science and, you know, this question of science on TV. Are those two things really compatible? He thinks they are, but a lot of his colleagues don't. Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder if there's stigma from people just being like, I can't believe you're selling out and, you know, that kind of thing. And and, and people who are scientists who have been on television have always faced that stigma. And I'm sure Bill Nye even faced that in his early years. Carl Sagan, I feel bad for because he especially faced it. And it's amazing. He really persevered through that. 
So let's talk about a show that uh, many people may remember from their childhoods. It was 321 Contact. And, and in some ways, it was part of this kind of new generation of science programs that were not so much, here's a smart person at a blackboard telling you how science works. It was more like kids figuring things out for themselves, more kind of citizen science. Um, I'm going to play you a clip from an episode. This is 1980. And in it, a young man has measured the decibel level of different workplaces. Um, Here he is talking to a doctor about how that affects your hearing. I'll tell you, Doc, you wouldn't believe some of these guys. I was at LaGuardia Airport. You know, there's these jet engines out there, and this guy's right on the runway. And uh, I got 117 decibels. But he doesn't believe he's lost any hearing. He says, matter of fact, it's gotten better. Hard for me to believe that. I can't believe that either. I can't believe that at all. Um, why do you think science on TV made that shift to, like, being more approachable, having the kids do the science themselves? I mean, he's not a young kid, but he's a young man, not a person in a white lab coat. The idea is sort of being he's kind of like us, the, the, the viewer. Yeah. Again, I think it was an approach about showing what science really looked like that started with Nova. And and Nova was the first, they were the first show that did it, the first show that put real people, real graduate students, um, you know, on camera. Mm. And I think that the people who, uh, I know the people who put 321 Contact together were certainly inspired um, by that. And they were also the same group of people who put shows like Sesame Street and Mm. The Electric Company on air. And Mm. those were shows that were, again, really about showing um, that the world was this wonderful, diverse place and you could be a part of it. Mm. And 321 Contact is the first show that I know of that looks actually at specifically what kids want. Um, They actually surveyed thousands of children across the United States and asked them, hey, what would you like a science program to look like? Really? Interesting. Right. And the kids wrote back um, talking about the shows that they they were interested in. Everyone's favorite show in the uh, mid-1970s, no surprise, is Happy Days. Okay. <laughs> and similarly, all you know, the, all the girls really like Charlie's Angels because it's about these powerful women mm-hmm. who are like in control. Right. Actually, another show that is very popular that uh, they consider bringing in someone for is uh, M.A.S.H., Okay. Actually, the people so three two one contact considers c- contacting Alan Alda and asking him to host a, the science show. Really? Yeah. Isn't that because, interesting? Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, and then they also considered contacting Lavar Burton, who again is this really dynamic character actor that kids really identify with. Uh, this is years before Reading Rainbow. Was it years in the future also that um, that Alan Alda would host Scientific American Frontiers? Exactly, yeah. Okay, completely. that hadn't happened yet. They were just no. like, how about this guy from MASH? He'd be good. Right, exactly. Okay, he seems okay. to be good with science. He's talking about medicine, you know. He so might be good. interesting. Right, yeah. And again, so 321 Contact is a, uh, is a landmark show in that they bring together a council of African-American scientists and a council of um, uh, Latino scientists to talk about their experiences being in the communities of science. Um, And because specifically they're trying to reach children from a wide background of science and uh, communities. Hmm. So let me ask you finally about kind of where you think we are today in terms of science programming, whether, I don't know, has a lot of the creative stuff, not all of it, of course, um, but has it gone to YouTube? Just give me a sense of what you think. Um, I think that 
in some ways, we are back to where we were in the late 1940s and early 1950s when it comes to science communication. You know, these things are cyclical. And in much the same way that in the 1940s and the 1950s, science educators were scratching their heads and saying, huh, there's this new thing called television. What do we do with it? People who are interested in science communication now are looking at TV and they're looking at digital tools that are available online and they're like, huh. What do we do with this? And so I think there is interesting science broadcasting that's going on on television. I think that a lot of it is driven by charismatic personalities. And in this, I'm thinking about the upcoming series that I'm excited to watch with Jeff Goldblum that uh, National Geographic is putting together. That's all Mm. about curiosity and wonder. So I think Mm. we're seeing a lot of those programming styles because I think one of the important parts of these television programs, programs like Cosmos, programs like... Bill Nye, Nova, Mm -hmm. are the ways that a fan community coalesces around Mm. a particular um, show. Again, with Cosmos, you have lots of folks who really grew up seeing Carl Sagan, and they think of themselves as Cosmos fans. Mm. Um, Bill Nye thinks of himself as a a Mr. Wizard fan, right? Right. And if you have that in, if you have that personal connection across the screen, um, you feel connected and you feel invested. Ingrid Okert is a Haas Fellow at the Science History Institute. She's also a NASA History Fellow. Ingrid, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Thanks to everyone on our staff. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer Doug Sugertz. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.